Hello, ghouls, gals, and the badass days of the world. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Horror Hangover Show. My name is Cass Clark. I am the interview and review editor for CBR, but this is not at all a CBR-affiliated podcast. All opinions here are definitely my own and that of my lovely co-host, Ryan Bradley. If you look for me as a writer, I'm Ryan C. Bradley. And that's because Ryan Bradley writes The New Yorker. He's much more successful than I am. He won the name, kind of Highlander situation. So I do the middle initial thing, even though it sounds very pretentious. I write for Wicked Horror. I've been writing for them since 2014, I think. I've written for Diabolique, Dread Central, also CBR. Today we're talking about jump scares, where they come from, what we think makes them work, some modern ones that do it really, really well. Indie fave of mine that I think really does a good spin on it. So just to start off, I would love to hear Ryan's take. If you had to define what a jump scare is, what would it be? It's a scare that makes you jump. Generally, it's a loud noise. So one question I had going to this was, does it have the scare itself have to be jumpy for it to be a jump scare? One of my first thoughts before I started digging to research was, could Halloween with Michael Myers be considered jump scare? Like all the times where he's like hauntingly in the back of a window and just there, would that classify? It's a great question. I don't know. I will say um, the new movie La Llorona. Yes, Bustamante is one that goes all into the Guatemalan Civil War with ghosts had the best use of that i don't think it's quite a jump scare but her standing silently throughout that film was absolutely terrifying it was just like an exercise in stillness so i guess i don't think it would be a jump scare although i think it is an effective scare i try to find out who first coined the term the jump scare to no luck, unfortunately. I did find a bunch of fun factoids for horror fans to dig into. From what I could find, the first jump scare was in Le Manoir du Diable, a short film from France, about three minutes long, a really long format for the time where that came out. Basically, this man on the hunt to see the devil and where the devil is. So there's a bunch of flashes, which is kind of normal for that time period, the way how film was cut together. Uh, but at one point in time, a skeleton jumps out right in front of the man, the man jumps back and is like, oh, and that was really the first instance that I could find of a jump scare happening. Around the same time, and this definitely isn't a jump scare, it's just an interesting factoid, but uh, there's a film by the same director, um, I'm not going to try to say the name in French, Cassie's very brave, um, I am not, um, Arrival of a Train, and the apocryphal tale is that when people saw this 50-second short film by the same director, they ran out of the building because it was a train headed towards the, the camera. I don't think it's actually true, but it is an interesting little myth. In 1922, we have Nosferatu, a very scary silent film that often like around Halloween time, people will break out a live band to play strings to. And something that I really liked about this film, and that I think can qualify as, as being like in the jump scare genre, is it was probably the first time on film that we actually had the like hulking, looming monster in the background and appearing in windows, which is something that will happen so many more times in the future in future scary films. So I think it's worth noting that at the time, a vampire appearing in a window in 1922 was terrifying to audiences. <laughs> a lot of people also cite 1925's The Phantom of the Opera as being probably the first jump scare because there's a scene in it where if you've seen it, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, here's a spoiler for like, hundred year old film, basically phantom at one point unmasks himself and you see his true face, which is 
monstrous in the context of the film. In real life, it's just a man who was badly burnt and we shouldn't be mean to him. But that scene made audiences jump at the sight of him. So that's also cited a lot as a first jump scare. The one that people mostly mention is 1942's Cat People. And that one is closest to what we think of now when we think of a jump scare where there's a buildup to something frightening happening. The scene is set in a way where we know something is going to possibly get at the character and we feel like we're vicariously living that same experience. And the scene that gets credited as a first jump scare, the main character, Alice, is just walking to a bus stop. And as she walks, there's this feeling that someone is following her. Steps increase and increase and that sonically starts building this tension that something's coming. Everything behind her is black. So as an audience, you can't really see because it's so dark in the film. And she like keeps walking faster and faster and faster. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a bus shows up and it's this really loud screeching sound uh, in that sudden screech from the Luton bus made everyone in the audience at the time jump. So that's often where people say the jump scare came from. In the 60s, we have Psycho, which has a bunch of different kinds of jump scares. People say the shower scene counts as one. Some people disagree with that because it's very much foreshadowed and, and seen and we know what's coming. People will say the first time you see Norman Bates's mother, that counts as jump scare because it's something that's unexpected that we see that horrifies us and shocks us and causes us to quite literally jump out of our seats. Fast forward to the 80s, Friday the 13th. Ryan, would you like to take away this jump scare and why it works? (laughs) You love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Friday the 13th, um, the original, if you haven't seen it, again, I think for movies from 1980, we're way past the statute of limitations for spoilers. Pamela Voorhees murdering all of these poor teenagers because her son died and she couldn't find a therapist. She kills all these teenagers and the, the last teenager decapitates her with a machete in a pretty dope scene, to be honest. The surviving teenager floats away on this canoe and she's sitting there, she's kind of sleeping and a little dead boy, which we're meant to assume is Jason, the drowned son of Mrs. Voorhees, jumps up and grabs her in the canoe. And it's, it's actually a terrifying moment. I think that was the first jump scare I ever saw where I physically like felt terrified because I just didn't expect it to be coming. Like, what do you think worked technically to make that happen? I think it's more the emotional thing than the technical thing. I think we're lulled into a sense of false security because the killer is decapitated on the beach when this is happening. Her head and her body are far apart and no one has come back from the dead in this movie to this point. Mm. And so Jason's already also in the story. He's been introduced. We know he drowned. So him coming out of the water, it doesn't make sense, but it also has been completely set up. That's actually one of the most important elements of a jump scare. Whatever's going to jump out and scare the character has to be set up beforehand. Yeah. From what we've seen through the history of this, like thus far that we're going into (laughs) is if we don't know, if we don't expect something is coming, then it doesn't seem like it would meet the qualifications of what is a jump scare. Because it seems like so far, what makes the jump is not expecting the thing that is coming to come. Although we know it's leading towards somewhere or just complete misdirection. Next up, 1981's American Werewolf in London, which is one of the first horror films to do a dream within a dream sequence and use the horrifying effects of a scary dream to change the game of what's happened to the the protagonist, something that will then be very much delved into uh, and (laughs) Nightmare on Elm Street, which comes out a bit later. uh, And then a whole franchise is born about the idea of 
what gets at you when you're asleep and that terror, uh, and in a space where you think you're safe and you're secure and quite literally turned off from the rest of the world and your body. And that's where, uh, danger can get you. So that started a whole new realm of dreams being scary and dreams being able to seep into reality. And what that means fast forward to the nineties, a lot of teen slashers that were were movies, <laughs> but Scream came around, really changed the game because it let horror be self-aware and have knowledge of everything that came before it. Same stuff they use for pig's blood and carry. With that self-awareness came the idea of rules and playing with rules and fucking up the rules, which made audiences unsure about what was happening and questioning what was happening. My one that I love, particularly in Scream, is the end. Billy Loomis gets shot in the head and it's literally said moments before he comes back to life that, you know, the killer always comes back. And it's like an homage to Friday 13, Halloween, every single big giant guy with a knife that's come before and we know it's coming. The way that the scene is shot, it's paused just long enough that when he does jump up and he goes, uh, it does cause, <laughs> does cause quite the fright because it seems like since the film says it's coming, we as the audience are like, okay, it can't come because we acknowledge that's usually what happens. Then when it does happen, it is actually scary because we thought it was already dealt with. So that is my quick time travel through history with yeah. jump scares. I'm sure there are plenty of other amazing films that also had jump scares. Let us know if there's some favorites that we missed. Um, I would love to personally watch them because fun fact, I don't like jump scares. I really don't. <laughs> um, really? Yeah. I, I thought a while about like, why don't I like jump scares? I think there are some that I like, but I think what it comes down to is for me, when there's a jump scare, it brings it back to like me as the audience member, like me as cast watching this film and getting scared and taking my focus away from the film, like quite literally or jumping. Mm. Uh, and it breaks that like fictive dream element of it. Or like, I want to feel okay. so immersed in it that I'm just like, I just can't stop watching. But jump scares literally makes me want to stop watching and then get back to it. And then sometimes for me, it can be hard to re-engage. And then other times I feel like the film itself doesn't know how to, to draw you back in after that. What do well, you I think about jump scares? <laughs> so I like jump scares, um, but I also find them frustrating because I think the, the number one thing I hear when I talk to people who like kind of like horror, but kind of hate it too. Like people who are like on the fence, people who don't like horror just say like, it's too scary. But if you delve a little further, a lot of times you'll find like, what they'll say is that it's just a bunch of jump scares. I find that criticism to be frustrating because I think in a lot of bad movies, there are jump scares in lieu of actual movie. So like you'll get like a boring clunker of a movie and it'll be 40 minutes of just like kind of boring stuff. And there's a jump scare somewhere in there. And you kind of like, you're not on set, obviously. You haven't read the script, but it always feels like there's a producer who realized this was boring and instead of making a better movie or improving the script, they were like, what if we put a jump scare at the 15 minute mark just to kind of wake people up? And then we'll throw in some more jump scares. Do they have anything to do with anything? No. These jump scares are only here to, to shock the audience. And I think that kind of goes towards what you said about how you feel like the jump scare is about you and not the movie. Yeah. The movie I'm going to talk about today, which I think has a lot of great jump scares, one in particular, I think is one of the scariest ones of the 20th century, um, is The Conjuring. Quick caveat, I do not love Ed and Lorraine Warren. I, I know they're charlatans. Mm -hmm. And I have heard a lot of criticism of these movies being very um, conservative and religious, which I think 
is accurate. So I'm not defending them. But I do think the Heidenklapp scene is one of the scariest scenes I've seen, at least one of the scariest jump scares I've seen. And spoilers for The Conjuring coming up. If you don't want to hear them, stop listening. Uh, <laughs> So I think what makes this jump scare work very well is, so there's three scenes. I watched it yesterday. They're at about 10 minutes, 30 minutes, and 36 minutes about. First one, the girls are playing the hide and clap game. So it introduces this concept of a game, which I had never heard of. Um, maybe other people have. I feel like the reason I haven't broken a bone to this point in my life is because I didn't know about the hide and clap game. But the girls are playing this game, hide and clap, where one of them is blindfolded. They spin her 10 times and she has to find the other girls with only sound. She has three claps that she can ask for. The second one, the mom is home alone, playing with the youngest daughter and the bell witch, which is the villain in the Conjuring film. Speaking of religious conservative ideology, the Conjuring films, the witch <laughs> is the bad guy. But she's playing, the mom's alone playing with her five-year-old daughter. She thinks she's going to her daughter and she's blindfolded. So this is great dramatic tension because we can see the daughter is not in this closet where the bell witch has attracted her to. But there's no jump scare then. The closet opens and it's creepy as hell. And then about six minutes later, the mom is sleeping and she hears a clap. And we, I think we get a shot of the girls all sleeping. So we know it's not the kids. And we know the bell witch has teased her before. So there's this great setup and the tension keeps building. She goes down the stairs, she goes into the basement and the, the lights bulb bursts. And that's kind of a jump scare. But the real scare, the one that really gets me, is the mom is standing in the closet. The door slams closed. She's sitting there in the dark. She finally gets the match lit. We can just see her face. And in the background, we hear, we see the hands like uh, four inches, five inches from her head. Mm -hmm. I think it's a super successful jump scare. It absolutely scared the living piss out of me. It's a lot. It's a very effective jump scare. And I, the reason I think it works is because it's a complete story. You take these three uh Three scenes, they have to build their own short film. And there's a character motivation for the scare. The Bell Witch is trying to break mom down to possess her. So her, she'll kill her own child, which is the Bell Witch's motivation. Those are the two things a really good jump scare need. And there needs to be a setup for whatever is going to happen. Or it needs to be like something that builds the story going forward. It can't just be jump and then it's gone. Yeah. And then it needs to have like someone did the jump scare for a reason. So it's yeah. not just the director messing with you even though I like it when directors mess with me but they need to do it in the confines of the story yeah 100 percent. and I think I mean my own caveat to this is I don't like the Conjuring franchise either but a lot of work goes into making a film getting it made and then distributing it it's like it's a lot of work so I definitely won't speak too ill of it but I will say that I have an issue with the caricature of like Ed and Lorraine's relationship as being a super romantic thing. And I do think it's important to mention in the context of talking about the film, film romanticizes Ed, Warren and Lorraine's seemingly perfect marriage, right? It's very like saccharine, sweet and everything. But in reality, um, Ed Warren had taken a 15 year old teenage girl to live with them in an open marriage was something that nobody talks about. And consent is very, very questionable. And in my mind, 15 year old is not old enough yeah. to consent. And it's something that doesn't at all ever get touched with like a even nine foot pole in the franchise. And I think that's something that I just like to always mention it when people are talking about it. It's an uncomfortable truth that people just shy away from while people are vomiting money at this relationship. Uh, yeah. I will link in much more in-depth report of that part of Ed's life in the show notes. Um, but I do feel like it's important to mention yeah. it. I did not know that. I would have probably picked a different film. Well, I, I think it's important that. that you, well, I know it's okay. I think it's important yeah. that you did because I think that 
we can talk about it, but I think we have to also acknowledge like what we're feeding into like this misconception yeah. about them, you know? <laughs> That's a crazy thing. I've been thinking lately about the way possession films are so conservatively Catholic for the most part. Yes. And I think the the best alternative I've read, it's a book, not a movie, The Possession of Natalie Glasgow by Haley Piper, which I won't spoil, has a very cool take on possession and exorcism. The Conjuring hide and clap scene. So I think it works on a technical level super well. So I liked breaking it down on a shot by shot level to be like, what happened on the screen that created this? So I think some of it is stuff that Brian already mentioned where, you know, we know that something is coming because narratively I paved the way the viewer. We also see the light bulb explode and it gives us some darkness and helps create this like creepy atmosphere and the actual moment when the jump scare does happen. I think what was really interesting uh, from the director's standpoint is there's only four to five inches above the mother's head that is possible for something to come out of. So even looking at it, if you were to pause before the hide and clap jump scare happens, most of the screen is just her face and it's just darkness. And it's not a lot of space where you'd imagine something could fit. So when something as small as like hands find their way into that space, especially disembodied hands, it's incredibly creepy. Where's the body of these hands? <laughs> like what is happening? The lighting works really well as well. because everything around her is dark. The hands are like very ghastly white. Uh, so I think all that stitched together makes that scene work on a visual level. Yeah. So my choice for a modern jump scare that I think works really, really well is episode eight of The Haunting of Hill House. It works as well as it does if you pay close attention to the struggles of the Crane sisters throughout the series. It definitely works better if you've seen all the episodes leading up to it. If you watch the episode of Out of Context, it will still technically work, but a lot of its power, I think, would be lost. I definitely recommend if you haven't seen Hill House to watch it. If you don't want to listen past here to not be spoiled, pause and come back. So the middling half or so of episode eight, the Crane sisters are arguing a whole bunch, which is not new to them. Theo and Shirley have never really gotten along. In an episode or so prior, Theo might have made out or almost made out with Shirley's husband, which caused a lot of tension to be added to their already tense relationship. And they decide to just start arguing in this episode about literally all the tensions that have been built up over time uh, in the relationship. Before the jump scare happens, the episode does a really great job of setting up the stage. Something is going to happen that is frightening. The setting is they're in this funeral house, which Shirley owns. They're arguing. Half their family have gone to look for their brother, who they believe is on his way to commit suicide, following in the footsteps of his sister, Nell. And as they're arguing, they hear this knocking and banging on the door. So Shirley, of course, goes to the door and opens it. Nothing is there. They go back to arguing. Uh, there's banging on the windows, banging on the doors, and they're incredibly freaked out, but nothing actually happens. And I think that is important to have before the actual jump scare happens. All the tension is there. It feels like it's done over for now. And then they keep arguing and tensions keep rising and they hop in their car and drive. They keep fighting and tensions keep rising. Theo's really trying to explain herself to Shirley and Shirley's not listening. And then out of seemingly nowhere, Nell's ghastly ghost head, aka the bent neck lady, just appears between them and screams her head off, which causes Shirley to veer off the road and they go into a ditch. And after that moment, 
the two sisters finally start having a conversation where they're listening to each other, not just talking at each other from opposing ends. Uh, and I think it works so well. Similarly to like what I mentioned about the conjuring hide and clap scene, I think the tight constrictive space of where Nell pops in is like what really makes it work too. Because once again, the way the film is shot, it doesn't seem like something can fit in there. And it's filmed in a very dramatic way where there's just two protagonists arguing with each other. And you wouldn't expect someone from the backseat to come there, frankly, because there's nobody in the backseat. There's no one there. And the fact that it does happen in such a small space in like a darkly lit car in the middle of the night is just terrifying. And I jump every time I see it, even though I know it's coming. I do think your observation about the claustrophobic spaces is a very smart one. Oh, thanks. I think like... <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any examples I can think of like an open field jump scare just in a big space. But I don't think that really happens. I think the claustrophobic space is an absolute essential element to a good jump scare. It's not a big space. I think the camera goes in tight. I think you're right. It shrinks the space. Yeah, because I was just going to say, I was like, well, as much as we love Friday the 13th, that one is like a tranquil lake, right? So like it's a lot of space, but you're right. The camera itself, the lens constricts, so it becomes a lot smaller. So it's something in a space that doesn't feel like it should fit, which you're like, oh, yeah. What did you think of this scene? I would love to hear your thoughts. I love it for the reasons you say. I think that the the jump scare is part of the story, not just something outside it to scare viewers. Um, I think the sister, Nell, wants her sisters to stop fighting. She wants them to save their brother. She can't do it because she's dead. It's set up for with the knocking and she has a motivation to do it. It's not just for the sake of having a jump scare. It's this is happening for a reason beyond just getting the audience's heart rates elevated. Like I like haunted houses. Mm-hmm. Um, I like going to them. I like the the guy chasing me with the chainsaw. If you told me to go to the same haunted house twice, I wouldn't. Mm. Do you think misdirection is important? Because I think that's something that came up a couple of times. Like, is that where the surprise element comes in? The expecting something and then it's not what we expect, but we still are directed there. Absolutely. And I think when you were talking about the scream jump scare, you were talking about how good it was because Wes Craven had this just absolutely phenomenal timing mm-hmm. with that particular scare. I mean, getting Skeet Ulrich to jump, just making us wait for that moment, even though we know it's coming. I had to pop a bunch of balloons with a car key once. It was like a family event for Betsy's family. And we had to pop all the balloons. They made this balloon arch and I didn't have a box cutter. So I was just sitting there with my car key. If all a jump scare had to be, you could make that a very scary jump scare because like you don't know when it's going to break with a car key because you're kind of forcing it in. I don't know if this is relevant to anything. Maybe we should go. No, no. I think what it made me thought of immediately was anticipation. So like we need some sort of misdirection. Uh, claustrophobia certainly helps. Like we didn't speak about yes. it today, but the descent still scares the shit out of me. And I yeah. would never say anything as scary as the descent because it it's too close. I feel like everything's going to cave in. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I do think, I didn't mention when we were talking about The Conjuring, but I think James Wan is a phenomenal director. Mm. Um, I like a lot of what he does. And I think throughout that entire film and throughout Insidious, Dead Silence, Saw, Insidious 2, he just does incredible work. He's always misdirecting and then scaring you when you're not expecting it. Yeah. And you know what? I really like speaking of Dead Silence, because that's one of those films where it toes the line of, of camp for sure. It's definitely not camp. 
but it's definitely having a lot of fun and, and it feels like that's part of its purpose. We don't care too much about the protagonist. So when things happen, we're like, well, that was fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the ending of that movie. And I think it could also qualify as a jump scare. And it also kind of reminds me of that Norman Bates mother reveal where like the chair slowly turned and we're like, oh my God. His father has been, spoiler, but his father has been dead for a very long time and has been turned into this like puppet for this very evil being to use. That, in my mind, I think that would qualify still as a jump scare. Um, yeah. I guess going back to an earlier question. Yeah. Do you think jump scares can be quiet in general? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I think of jump scares, I think of like the orchestral like, bam, that goes with the moment. Yeah. But I think you can absolutely have a jump scare without that. Do you think this yeah. where it's essential to make the jump scare? Because a lot of the ones you mentioned, like definitely Nosferatu is not nearly as scary without the score. Certainly like Psycho, definitely anything by James Wan. Like, oh my God, those violin strengths. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Is there a quiet moment without a score and a jump scare that you think work? I don't, it's hard because I don't know off the top of my head, but I think the thing that makes film the, the art it is that the score and the script and the acting and the cinematography are all working together to create the moment. Mm. It's like, yeah, you could probably do it without, I don't think it'd be as scary. I mean, do you ever play hide and seek when you're a kid and someone just jumped out at you randomly? Yeah. And that was always scary, but it never stuck with me beyond like 10, 20 seconds, except my brother did, uh, he jumped out at me once and mm. I hit my head on one of those old uncovered radiators I was like three or four and I remember very specifically like being sitting on the toilet while both my parents like held my hair apart to look at the cut and discuss whether or not I needed stitches. <laughs> um, I didn't, but that stuck with me. But I, th I don't think movies can do that to people. I don't think James Wan is allowed to go into the theater and concuss a bunch of <laughs> audience members. Going back to scores and horror and how it works with jump scares, one movie that I think also a Mike Flanagan production that tries to do this and play with this question of whether or not we need a score to make a jump scare work is Hush. Uh, it uses a lot of mm. lights instead, uh, especially because the not the actor, but the character in Hush is a person who is deaf. So they use a lot of the setup around her home life to kind of feed into how scares would work for her so there's a lot of flashing of lights um because obviously alarms wouldn't be heard there's a lot of appearing in windows to kind of create that jump scare and it got me thinking a lot after i saw that about whether or not scores are essential for jump scares so one thing i did find on my little hunt uh, for that question was asl films which is a film studio that is independent deaf owned and operated production company for all film media. And they have a bunch of films that are super neat to check out on the website and a bunch of horror films that really gets us out of our comfort zone for people who are hearing that only have experienced horror with sound. So I definitely recommend checking some out. Sounds I've, really cool. <laughs> right? I feel like a lot of things with film is like things have been done a certain way. So then things are continued to be done that way. And it's very clear that films are mostly made for people who are hearing, people who have sight. And there's like all these constraints that we put on film without even thinking about it that I think taking away one element just change how we think about all the rest. Cassie brought in an indie film we both think did jump scares really well. Caveat, which is now streaming on Shudder. It is an Irish movie, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, Irish independent film. Irish independent film. The premise is insane. 
Um, This man who has some kind of amnesia, he's watching his friend's adult niece in this house. He rows him across the river, which the guy can't swim. He gets there and he says, oh, there's this one little caveat. The title card caveat comes. Apparently, to make the, the niece feel safe, the main character has to be hooked into uh, a chain like vest and he can't move beyond the, the length of this chain he's just going to be in this vest for for two weeks i guess mm-hmm. which he agreed uh, to which is wild so i spoke to the director and writer damon mccarthy especially about this because i was like this is such a wild premise like like this man says yes to this like were you worried that audiences would not tune in because like who would say yes to this and his response i thought was really interesting was just like given enough money like people will do anything. That yeah. man is desperate. <laughs> I think the price is pretty low for that man too. I think they said $200 a day. <laughs> and it's like, bro, it's wild. But I have a theory about enjoying movies, books and anything. I think you have to stake a movie or book, its first act, whatever it is, 15 minutes, 50 pages. You have to accept the premise of the story. Can't accept the premise. You're never going to like it. So it's just a waste mm-hmm. of everybody's time. But the movie adds in some other just like absolutely bonkers details. There's a doll rabbit that has a drum and it bangs the drum <laughs> whenever anything dangerous is coming. And it's this great conceit because it's like the the sound beeper in Alien, which is also great. You always want that in a horror movie, a sound to set the viewers off to know the dangerous was. Never explain why this rabbit beats but I absolutely fucking love that. Yeah. I like weird movies. And I love the idea of like, there's just a rabbit puppet with a drum and it's going to beat when something bad's happening. You're never going to know why. Yeah. It's like, instead of having Ed and Lorraine Warren, you just have this little rabbit with a drum. That's like, I can find that ghost for you. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need the Warrens. <laughs> and the rabbit with the drum does not have any weird conservative Christian baggage, um, which is Excellent. I don't need to feel guilty about recommending this rabbit that beats his drum. <laughs> that rabbit's amazing. And it also, I think it's an integral piece to the jump scares that come later. Yes. I think the film has a number of great jump scares, um, which I think you should, you as in the audience should watch it to see. Yeah. My favorite one is towards the end. It does all the things that I like about jump scares. There's anticipation. There's definitely built tension. Narratively, it makes so much sense why it happens. Some good revenge, ghost stuff going on, which I love. I find delicious. And it's quiet. You know what? Maybe what it is, I kind of do like quieter jump scares. I like it to just be haunting. I don't, maybe I just don't want to jump out of my seat. I just want to be terrified. (laughs) For me, the moment that works best in caveat, he has to stick his hand through this hole in the wall. He has to do it multiple times for multiple reasons. But he he sticks his hand through the wall multiple times. And most of the time, he's safe and you kind of know it. There's one where he's not safe and he doesn't know, but you know. And it's, oh, that whole thing, that whole sequence just phenomenal it's it's horrifying (laughs) and i think a lot of it has to do with i think it's scary to see someone have their fingernail ripped out than to see someone have their arm chopped off i have hit my fingers and stuff i've closed my thumb in a car door i have never had an arm ripped off i don't think i've had anything like (laughs) close in the ballpark nothing remotely like that so i can relate to a finger thing i cannot relate to a, a whole arm thing I think the director of this movie understood that and Mm -hmm. used it very well. 
I think that's totally right. I never thought about it from that way before. But when you were mentioning like fingers and toes being damaged in some way or altered, there's just something about playing into accessibility fears. Knowing that you have, you can literally grasp something or run from something is such a safe feeling that when someone threatens to take away your ability to like touch or like even use like rudimentary tools, right? Like you can be able to open a door. If you cut off my thumb, it's going to take me some time to figure that one out. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I think that, I think that's also a bit of it too, where it's, maybe it's a bit of the relatability, but also just the fear of losing access to. Yeah. And I think sensitivity too. I think like, um, I know you do martial arts. Yeah, I do Taekwondo. It hurts a fuck of a lot when you hit something with your hand does not hurt as bad with your forearm or your elbow or your tricep right yeah it's a lot more nerves in your hands and your especially your feet I don't actually have that much feeling in my feet anymore <laughs> after like decades but um I will <laughs> say that like if I ever like kicked incorrectly and like toes were like pointed instead of pointed down dubbing your toe is super painful because there's so many sensors oh, yeah. in that that help our body grasp like the ground and, and orient us in space it does a whole bunch of stuff so yeah eyes are the same way it's just like a ton of nerves like you're getting yeah. like even just like a incidental poke in the eye even a gentle one is so painful to wrap it up things i think we think are essential for a good jump scare misdirection foreshadowing so we get that juicy anticipation claustrophobia <laughs> essential to the story Ooh, dramatic yeah. irony when we know something is coming that the characters yes don't, we haven't talked about or... that enough but dramatic irony absolutely yeah especially you know what especially with caveat streaming now and shutter is a master of dramatic irony especially with how it uses its box there's so much that we know that the characters don't know and its characters don't know about each other and it it's just such a fun ride absolutely yeah. so this is our first episode Thank you for joining. There'll be many more soon. We'll be releasing podcasts on a monthly basis. And each month we'll have a different horror trope to go into and just kind of dissect, do a little history lesson, see what works well, what doesn't, hang out a bit. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Subscribe on your podcast app. That's how that works. (laughs) Um, Just talk at your phone and be like, find horror hangover, (laughs) please. Everyone's going to get hangover cures. Yeah. They're going to look for us and they're going to get like, drink a raw egg. <laughs> Blue Gatorade. That's going to save you. Hair of oh the God. dog. That poor person that's just like, I want to hear a hangover cure. And it's just like, we're talking about stabbing eyeballs. <laughs> that person <laughs> has it way worse. <laughs> oh, maybe we can be their gateway horror. <laughs> <laughs> we're okay. the gateway horror for some poor hungover person. I mean, if you're, if you're horizontal enough, like you'll, you'll try anything once. <laughs>